This episode is sponsored by the human rights team at Lee Day. Hello and welcome to the Better Human podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a human rights barrister and this podcast is all about human rights. Today's topic is one which I found fascinating for years and I think it brings out some of the most important and difficult balancing issues in human rights law and it's the right to religion. And I've got two excellent guests to discuss all the different issues which arise in education, in family law, in the right to wear certain kinds of religious dress. And they are, um, first of all, Yehudis Fletcher. Yehudis is the founder of Nahamu, a brand new organization whose focus is preventing and tackling extremism in the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community where Yehudis grew up and still remains. The second guest is Andrew Copson, who is the Chief Executive of Humanists UK. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course taught in London. And for 2020, they're launching a criminal justice and human rights pathway. If you want to contact me, you can get me on adam at betterhumanpodcast.com, follow us on Twitter at behumanpodcast. And if you find this podcast interesting and illuminating and you want it to continue, please consider giving a couple of pounds a month via our Patreon patreon.com forward slash betterhuman. Now, just to let you know, Yehudis was not with Andrew and me in the recording studio, which is a basement um, room in my chambers. Um, she's up in Manchester. So the quality of her recording is, is slightly different to the quality of recording for mine and Andrew. So um, bear with us on that. And I, I think it uh, still sounds great. Welcome, Andrew and Yehudis. I'm going to start by just asking you to introduce your organisations because you both you're not lawyers, which is uh, which is a good divergence for the podcast because I've had enough of uh, <laughs> of the lawyers. Um, but I'm going to ask Yehudis first just to talk a bit about Nahamu, which at the point we're recording this is just about to launch, but the point this goes out will have very successfully um, and, and in a high profile way will have launched. So just tell us in a couple of lines about Nahamu. So Nahamu is a counter-extremism think tank tackling extremism as it presents in the Jewish community. Um, we are not reinventing the wheel. There's lots of other communities that experience extremism and fundamentalism. We're looking to sort of look at what's worked in the past and we are looking to conduct research um, and, and figure out what will work for us. And Andrew, tell us about Humanist UK. Humanist UK has been going for about 125 years, since the late 19th century, um, bringing together people with a humanist approach to life, that non-religious approach to life that um, you probably know about. And part of our work has always been advocacy, including campaigning and litigation on behalf of people with a humanist approach to life uh, specifically. And more generally, um, we've always been supporters of the human right to free expression and the human right to freedom of religion or belief. And it's, of course, in the or belief bit that we fit. And Yehudis, you come from a, from the background of um, the ultra-Orthodox community, is that right? Yeah, I would still classify myself as ultra-Orthodox. I grew up in Glasgow, but I was married off um, at 18 and I, I moved to Stanford Hill at that point. So where I thought we'd go with this is, first of all, I'll just give a very brief introduction to how human rights law deals with religious belief. Um, and other kinds of belief, and what kinds of human rights are in play. And then we can talk about topics um, of, of, of the areas and, and of, of the kinds of areas which 
come up in these in the cases. So we're going to talk about religious dress. We're going to talk about family law cases, so cases involving divorces, children, those sorts of issues around family, education, which is another hot issue in that brings out these um, religious rights questions. And finally, what I describe as services and employment. So um, things like when somebody's give, providing a service and they are a religious believer or they are providing a service to religious believers, what are the duties in law and how, and how do these play out? And, and the actual cases themselves are, I think, the amongst the most interesting balance of rights cases that come out in human rights law overall. Um, and, and I talk about balance of rights because these are the rights in play are not the rights which can never be breached. So that so you, you have you have unqualified rights in the in the European Convention. You have the right not to be tortured or the right to life, and those are pretty much the state can't take life except in very limited circumstances. The state can't torture. But when it comes to religious belief and other kinds of beliefs um, which are protected under Article Nine. Um, of the European Convention. Everyone has an unlimited right of thought, conscience, and religion, so to believe, but everyone has a qualified right to manifest their religion. So the best way to understand that is what you have in your own head is completely protected and nobody should be able to invade or prevent you having believing what you want to believe. But once you start manifesting those beliefs in the real world, then you come into contact with other human beings who have potentially different beliefs or different identities, which you, which your religion may make you treat in a certain way. And that's why you have this balancing exercise. You're not just balance, balancing against the rights of others, you're also balancing against other rights. So Typically, there's the right to freedom of expression under Article 10, which is, which again is a qualified right. So you have a right to say, you know, express yourself in the way you want to. But once the the way in which you express yourself starts to impinge on the rights of others, you can start to get into difficulties. And that that's essentially, in summary, where where you start. And th- let's start about with religious dress. So, what are the kinds of of issues that can arise in relation to religious stress. And Andrew, do you want to just start? Well, I think, I mean, this is a good example to take us into this question of the, of the balancing, because, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And one of the things about freedom of religion or belief is that you've got that freedom up to the point where it starts to interfere with the freedoms of others. And so, um, in a way, that makes questions about religious dress in principle some of the easiest to answer because if you're just going about your business in the normal course of your life it's really difficult to see why anything that you wear could be interfering with the rights and freedoms of others in a democratic society um, and I think that's generally true and that's why um, you know there's very there should be very little uh, sucker given uh, by human rights laws on religion and belief to anyone who wants to do something like for example ban burkas in the street um, or you know, ban and uh, any sort of religious dress just in the, in the public space. Where it starts to get complicated is, as you said in your introduction, when one person's right to manifest their religion through dress might interfere with another person's rights. And we've seen those cases uh, not always in court. Sometimes they've been dealt with at a, at a policy level. But we've seen these cases, for example, in uh, schools 
where teachers in primary school, there was one teacher who wanted to wear a full face veil and there was a discussion about the extent to which that interfered with the children's rights to education with non-verbal communication being an important thing in the primary classroom. You know, and that's a complicated case. Um, but really, there are very few cases, I think, and that's uh, just the, one of the few examples I can think of, where I think religious dress becomes anybody else's business. So I think the, the, the human rights law um, approach to this question um, is really falls down quite firmly on the side of the right to manifest pretty much in, in most circumstances. I, I think that's right. I, I think that when you're talking about little things, not little things, but um, smaller symbols, so Sikh bangles, there's been cases about children wearing Sikh bangles where that was found to be, you know, they were prevented from wearing bangles and the, and, and the court said that was discrimination. Um, there was the British Airways, Mrs. Awida, the British Airways employee who wanted to wear a Christian cross and wasn't allowed and British Airways, by the time they got to court, they'd actually changed their policy yeah. anyway and said that people could wear religious dress. But they were the, the court found that she was not that that the, her right was being infringed. Because I mean, that the, was a messy case. Yeah, it, it was, sort of, it was all over the place. It, it was a bit messy, but yeah. but the but her cross was not impinging on anybody else's rights. There was no there was no workplace reason um, as compared to a case that was there at the same time in the same case in the European Court of Human Rights where they. Um, a care worker who was wearing a cross, which were, and that was found to be getting in the way of her work. That's right. It was on a chain, and it was it, it was yeah, on a chain, yeah, and people yeah. were grabbing it and, yeah, and, yeah, and that yeah. kind of thing. But you do get into slightly more complicated territory when you talk about the burqa. Yeah, um, and I think that there's a separate. And I wanted to ask Yehudas about about this, um, if if you have any view on this, which is that the case against the burqa is not necessarily that it's impinging on other people's rights. It's that it's impinging on the rights of the people who are being made to wear the burqa. Um, and I know that this isn't an, this isn't totally a an issue in the Muslim community, is it? Because in certain certain small parts of the ultra orthodox community, there are there is a kind of burqa equivalent. Equivalent is that right, Eudis? Um So it's relatively new, and it's um, probably not more than ten or fifteen years old. But women in um, starting from a small sect in Jerusalem and Beit Shemesh, which is just outside Jerusalem, began to wear a full veil. Um, they don't wear, it's not a, a niqab, so there's no slit for their eyes, um, and they are fully covered from head to toe, um, but they are an absolute minority. I can, there's probably about two, two, three hundred of them worldwide. Sorry, did he say no isolate? So they actually can't see out of it. Yeah, that, so they almost always have children guiding them across the roads. I mean, that's um, very extreme, isn't it? Even in Saudi Arabia, there's a sort of gauze over the eyes where women can just about see out. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. but the, the sort of liberal argument against, and actually this, um, this, this keys into one of the, you know, the article that Boris Johnson wrote, um, which, which is where, where he used the inexcusable language of the letterbox and the bank robbers. But what the argument that he makes for writing that article is that he was making a liberal argument against the burqa. And I think there is a kind of, there is a conflict in liberal opinion about what you do about religious communities that want to do certain things well, which so are that, their things. So that's the question, isn't it? There's, a, there's, there's an argument amongst, there, there might be doubt as to how many of the women who are wearing the burqa, for example, are really wearing it as a free choice. That's one thing. But that's not doubt about whether or not if it is their free choice, they should be allowed to wear it. Because I don't think anyone would question that in general, going about you know your private life, if you want to wear something and it's genuinely your free choice, you should be allowed to do it. The doubt comes in when people claim as or raise the 
um, the question, as you've raised, of whether or not it is freely chosen or whether or not there is some aspect of coercion. And it's very difficult, I think, actually, for the state or for authorities to answer that question or to even um, decide what sort of interventions they might make to determine whether women or not, whether women were making a free choice or not. Now, I've, I've met women for whom I've got no doubt at all that it was a, a completely a free choice in as far as any of our choices are ever free in the, you know, in the lives that we lead. Um, but then when I was um, doing some other work, I um, met women wearing burqas who I was completely convinced were not happy doing so. So it's, it's difficult, though, to, um, f- to, to know what policy you know, that, that any public authority might put in place could determine the difference between the two. Now, that's when some people go on to say, well, given that the harm to women who are coerced is so great, outlawing the whole thing and risking a limitation of some women's free choice for the sake of women who are being forced might be a good idea. But I don't think there's any argument against the fact that you are nonetheless in doing that compromising one woman's free choice because if there is um uh you know a free uncursed decision to do something in a liberal society i think we ought to um accept it so again there's a you know this is an additional question of balance against the original question of balance and it just shows how religion and belief cases can be very hard if, if it's okay to come in, I just want to flip it a little bit on its this argument on its head. What about religious institutions um, that try to mandate how people, how other people dress? So, for example, a state-funded school, um, a faith-based state-funded school that says um, mums coming to pick up have to wear a skirt. Yeah, I mean, they just can't do that, I think. Yeah, but but they, that would not survive a challenge, I think. Well, it, it wouldn't. I mean, I, I can speak from from my own experience of this that it, even amongst even in sort of modern Orthodox Jewish schools in London, and I don't, my my kids don't go to a, a, a Jewish school, but the but there is a even if it's not written down anywhere, there is an expectation that the that the women who pick up from the school will be wearing a, a quote unquote appropriate clothing. So that might include no trousers or you know mod- modest clothing and that is you know something which that those kind of particularly the unwritten rules it's very difficult to it's a kind of a, such a cultural um expectation it's quite difficult to to know where even where to go for the parents and what do they do who's going to rock the boat by well i'm going to rock the boat you are going to rock the boat yeah so what happened to me was I turned up to my children's prize giving and I was wearing short sleeves um, and I was offered and a shawl kind of, to what cover. what kind of school are, are, are your children at? They're at a modern Orthodox Jewish um, state school. Yeah. And, and can you just explain just in a, in a couple of sentences, what's the difference between modern Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox? Um, I think... Modern Orthodox um, schools interact more with the outside world. Their curriculum is likely to be, their secular curriculum will be excellent. Um, so they're not, cut, so that they're adding in extra um, Jewish studies rather than swapping out um, secular and Jewish studies. Okay. And, their, and their parent body will be different as well. Yeah. So, 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 so you turned up. You were, you were saying I interrupted yeah. you. I, I, I came to the prize giving. I was wearing short sleeves. I was offered a shawl to cover my shoulders. Um, and I said, how many fathers have you asked to cover their shoulders? Now, it wasn't even my shoulders that were exposed. It was sort of my, my biceps. I wish I had biceps, but my biceps. <laughs> and um, they said... Um, no fathers, but no fathers are wearing sleeves as short as yours. So I went around taking photographs of 
very muscly Jewish dads. Um, I then emailed That's it quite, into quite the school. <laughs> I emailed that through to the school and said I would be taking legal advice. And that's sort of a, a, a bit of a tension now between myself and the school, but they haven't asked me to wear a shawl since then. Um, the argument that the school puts forward is that in there are public places in which women and men are asked to dress differently. For example, um, at, at a, an ordinary beach, you might expect to see men um, topless. And if a woman was topless, she, she might be asked to, to cover up. And that was their argument. And I don't know. What do you think of it? I didn't go to school topless. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a, it's a bit of a it's a false analogy, really, isn't it? <laughs> because you weren't topless. Um, but also, I think that there are when you know the difference between um, the situation that in a school and a situation in a beach is that you know that school is a is a is a, is a state institution um, where people have to be free to be able to manifest their own beliefs. And in, in in your case, you know, your belief was that to cover your arms was not required. It was not something that you um, held as a matter of conviction. So you know, they should accommodate that, right? Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, look, I have to wear a horsehair wig in my um, my workplace <laughs> and a gown. But you know, if you are a um, you know, to, to, again, to flip it around, if you're if you are a Sikh barrister or a Sikh judge. You you're not expected to wear a horsehair right, wig. Exactly. You, you can wear your, your you wear a turban. And the, you know there are there are judges who wear turbans instead of horsehair wigs, and that that is all part of this kind of what what in human rights laws described as a proportionality exercise, um, and and that is and I think that's we're gonna we're gonna move on to the family cases, but I think it's a good good point to introduce this idea of proportionality because it plays a really important role in these cases, because under under um, Article 9, the right to freedom of religion and quite a few other rights, you the state is only entitled to interfere with the right if that interference is lawful and proportionate. And proportionality is a really important concept. It's the idea that you don't use a hammer to crack a nut. And to put it another way, you don't do more, more than is strictly necessary to achieve the aim you want to achieve. So a good example is that is the a case that was about a woman who wanted to give evidence in court wearing a niqab, and there was a big discussion, and the judge had to come up with a with an answer as to when she was a defendant, so she was on trial, and she wanted to wear her niqab throughout. And in the end, I think that the solution the judge came up with, which he said was the proportionate solution, was to that she could wear the niqab generally while listening to what was going on. But when she gave evidence, it was important for the jury to be able to see her face, to be able to assess you know, whether, the, whether she was telling the truth or not because of using sort of facial cues. Now, one of the arguments against that was that that is a misunderstanding of the scientific evidence on whether people actually get anything from facial cues. But it's that, that question of what can you do and what can you do which is proportionate, which is no more than is necessary? And the judge's decision was, well, sometimes she'd be able to wear the niqab and sometimes she wouldn't be able to. So, so let's move on to the family cases. So these are cases that come up usually where the court has to decide as effectively the guardian of a child what's in the child's best interests. Um, and there was a case quite recently, um, which Yehudis, I think you're quite familiar with, which was absolutely fascinating important case about a transgender woman who had moved out of the ultra-orthodox community 
So this is somebody who transitioned from male to female. Um, and the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community um, he, she felt was not um, welcoming to her, and in fact was not welcoming to her in her new gender. And she left, but but she had children in the community. And the court had to decide, well, what visitation rights would the children have? And I think from the mother's perspective, it was the the the, and really from the community perspective was that the the father should have no contact with the children. Um, and and in the first instance decision in the high court, that was decided to have been you know the right solution. And the court of appeal said differently. And, and Yudis, can you give us a bit more sort of insight into that case? So the court had to decide um, whether it was better for the children to see their parent or if it was better for them to be shunned by their friends and and their community. And that's an impossible choice to make. Um, And they decided, I think it had a lot to do with the status quo. By that time, the father um, was out of the community for a long time, hadn't seen them for a while, and they were settled in their schools. so what sounds like a really surprising decision, if you know a bit more about the circumstances and you're focusing directly on the rights of the child, it's a bit easier to understand. It was later um, overturned to say that the the High Court hadn't tried hard enough to make a workable solution or to come to a workable solution. Um, but that decision was about 18 months ago, and I know that... that um, the parent in question still hasn't been able to see their children. And, and, and well, that, that I mean, that's sad to hear, really, because that wouldn't have been what the Court of Appeal intended when it came up with the decision. I mean, just to, I'm just going to read a couple of quotes from the decision. So what the High Court said was that having considered all the evidence, the likelihood of the children and their mother being marginalised or excluded by the ultra-Orthodox community is so real and the consequences so great that the children could not have direct contact with their father. And then the Court of Appeal turned that on their head and they said a reasonable parent in the 21st century means someone who is, quote, receptive to change, broad minded, tolerant, easygoing and slow to condemn. We live in a society whose law requires people to be treated equally and where their human rights are respected. We live in a plural society in which the family takes many forms, some of which would have been thought inconceivable well within living memory. So, so, I mean, it sounds, Andrew, like mm. what the High Court said, well, it, it's two different conceptions of, of I guess, multiculturalism. It's yeah. decided the first idea is, well, this is what this community is like. They are intolerant towards transgender people and the chi- we have to look after the children. And unfortunately, yeah. that's just the way it is. And the Court of Appeals said, actually, that's not the way it is. This is a secular court with human rights principles at, at the heart. Um, and we're going to take a different view from that. We, we can't encourage or condone what's going on here. Yeah. Well, this illustrates the complexity of trying to apply secular human, right, human rights uh, law on freedom of religion and belief in reality, you know, in a culture, especially like in this country, where religion um, is elevated, uh, certainly above um, other types of belief, but also in general in society by some people. And then by others, excoriated as being conservative, reactionary, inimical to progress and to civilization, right? And to some extent, I think, um, you know, those two judgments illustrate to some extent those two different perspectives. Um, and that, again, is very difficult um, to balance. So 
the right now i obviously more comfortable with the um with the court of appeals decision than with uh, the initial uh, decision but i can also see the other side of the argument being that um in reality um, those people would be shunned and those children's lives would be diminished. And that is that is part of the complexity of trying to apply this law, especially in our country. Now, in a country like this, not to bring it back to the burqa, but in a con- countries like France and Belgium, where they have different um, both political cultures and, and, and wider cultures, of course... You much know, more secular. Much more secular. So, yeah, legally secular. So, you know, the, the, the Republic of France um, is a secular state, unlike, you know, the United Kingdom, which is a Christian state. Um, and so... Um, they apply when they're applying human rights law. It's much more automatic and comfortable for them to understand these principles as being a bit like the, the Court of Appeal held those principles as being, you know, applying to people today in a secular society. In you know the 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 the, um, the liberal society in which a lot of us live. Um, but in this country, it's slightly different. I mean, I know we're going to come onto education, and that's where it. Um, that's where this. Uh, you know the social facts about uh, England and the UK generally are more um, at play. Um, but even here, I think that uh, you know it illustrates the difficulty of applying these human rights principles in um, in a society like ours, which elevates religion in that way. I think it's um, really interesting to look at the first decision and. Well, uh, interesting is a euphemism. Um, the rights of the child to um to not be shunned obviously were considered but their rights to a, a decent education were not considered their rights to live in a tolerant society themselves where they had an atypical family structure were not considered um and the, the very core of their welfare was not considered because you had people sitting in court giving evidence um particularly mrs s who was a social worker from the community who gave evidence on behalf of the mother to say oh yes we we shun transgender people and also we shun victims of sexual violence and that was accepted okay this is an accurate description of the community and it wasn't challenged well i think there is some commentary on it but it wasn't robustly challenged so nobody at that point having heard that evidence sat back and said okay how safe are these children where they are yeah in general that's right exactly yeah it, it's yehudas do you think that is an accurate are you are you saying that's not an accurate description or are you saying are you saying that the accuracy should have been challenged or the the actual substance should be challenged from the courts from what the court is doing um, I think both. So first of all, I think they laid it on very thick about how, how the children would have been shunned. Um, the reality is quite different. Um, if you, you you need a certain tenacity to be able to challenge um, a community that doesn't necessarily agree with you. And, and it's true that, that there would have been a certain amount of discomfort. But this is not a community that endorses... Um, sort of it's not a particularly violent community it's not as if they would have been run out of town they might have had to switch to a slightly less orthodox school which is something that i believe was proposed and rejected by the court um so there's there's a lot that could have been done to mitigate what the mother was saying would happen um and then also the substance so if you're saying that this is the reality that your children live in why did nobody step in and say that that's not a safe way for a child to be brought up right exactly exactly and i mean there were all sorts of other you know questions raised by this case like the right of these children to to have other trips out of the community you know to to experience life outside of the community and i think most people would say that from from the perspective of the rights of the child and this is another thing that people often forget in freedom of religion or belief cases i um, mean in human rights cases generally is that children 
are humans and have their own rights um, under these under these provisions, that those children's rights to their own freedom of religion and belief, to have access to different uh, ideas, to be able to engage in, you know, in, in the wider culture w- was also compromised by there being this community. But, you know, that's that they, well, you just know it better than I, but those arguments are difficult to make in, in, a, in, a, in a narrow case like this. Because they're quite well, big argu- they're think- quite big arguments about you know the logical consequence of that would be to say that every child in this community is being deprived their rights now I mean I'm very comfortable uh, saying that actually because um, I believe that and you know humanist UK has done a lot of work to try and highlight this to say that actually children who are raised in that sort of way are being deprived of their ability to engage and to live in the society that they you know should, could could choose to go out into but that would be a pretty big thing for a court to say to say that well, well every I, child I, in I, this community and, Andrew I think it's quite um, that's a really broad stroke and I would step quite short of saying that every child in the community is at risk what I'm f- I feel very comfortable doing though is criticising systemic harm and looking at systems within the community and especially if someone um, works in a school or is a foster parent or has some kind of statutory roles willing to sit in a witness box and say this is how we do things well then that person's um, capacity to, to work in, in a statutory role should be examined well, I agree with you. That I agree with you there. Absolutely. I mean, the, it's the the courts have gone quite far. I mean, the, there was there was the case um, a, a few years ago now about uh, also from the ultra orthodox community. And we will go into other <laughs> other communities other are available. Yeah. yeah, other communities <laughs> are available. Um, but there was a case about a a, divor- a divorcing couple, um, and the mother wants to send the kids to a modern orthodox school, and the father wants to keep the kids in the ultra-orthodox community. And and his argument was that if they went to a modern orthodox school, that would effectively mean they would have to leave the ultra-orthodox community where they'd grown up. And, And in the end, the judge said, well, I'm looking at the best interests of the children, and particularly the girls, if they go, and there were a number of, I think there were four children, and if, if the girls stay in the ultra-Orthodox community, they will not have access to, they're unlikely to have access to university. They won't, they probably won't go on to further study, and that will significantly reduce their life chances. And that was quite, that's quite close to saying that yeah, it is, yeah. any girl um, in that ultra-Orthodox school system would be significantly disadvantaged in the wider society. Yeah, I'm... I'm very comfortable um looking at the systems that that people that you know the the ways in which the my community interacts with the outside world primarily is the nhs and um, education because we're inspected by ofsted um and we use the nhs and i think it's really important to look at where what what instead of saying well we don't know enough about this community and we and we mustn't um castigate an entire community and i don't think we should to look at the data that we do have we know how the schools operate we know about people's health we know how many children people are having and that should tell us something about access to contraception um so i i think that there is a lot more information available than than um than people realize the better human podcast is supported by your contributions if you find it useful and interesting i would really appreciate if you consider giving just three dollars a month that's just over two pounds via our patreon that's patreon.com forward slash better human and if a couple of hundred people do that then that will make the podcast sustainable and i can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects so that's a good good 
perfect point to move into education. We've already started talking about education. Let's move more broadly. Um, and I think an issue where um, is where Muslim, Jewish and Christian um, conservative communities have found common cause in, in the last couple of years is the LGBT education reforms in schools. And we've seen that most um, in a most visceral way in the, the protests in Birmingham, um, which have included all, I think, all three communities. Yeah. Um, and it's nice to see them all working together. <laughs> all, on, all on, the, together. on the one hand, <laughs> it's, it's nice to see them all working together. On the other hand, um, this is this is a, an important policy from the government. They want to, they want primary and secondary schools to educate children that um, LGBT children and adults are part of society. LGBT, um, so it's same-sex marriage is now just a part of our, an ordinary part of our society, just like any other kind of, um, any other kind of union. And that's essentially what this curriculum is about. Well, this, I mean, yeah, it is. And there's a whole load of educational policy reasons why the curriculum is introduced. But for the purposes of this discussion, what it definitely illustrates very vividly is the balancing that needs to be done between the parental right to freedom of religion and belief and the right of the child. And I mean, like we were saying a moment ago, this is a, you know, balancing on freedom of religion and belief with other rights is difficult enough. But once you accept that children are human beings and that they have rights, um, it becomes increasingly fraught. Um, because at that point, obviously, you're making judgments about what many people consider to be one of the most intimate and private relationships in existence between the parent and the child, right? So it's in that's opened up um, by this. And I, I mean, I, I endorse the argument that says... Yes, the parent has the right to freedom of religion and belief. They have the additional right to attempt to transmit that religion or belief to their children through the process of education. They have incredible means at their disposal to do so, like all the time they spend in the home, um, where they choose to send their child to supplementary school or at the weekends or whatever. But the child also has rights to access to information of a wide variety of types, to be able to make up his or her mind as they grow on important subjects in line with their developing maturity, and also to be say how to be safe and happy and healthy if you know evidence has demonstrated that one of the ways in which um, children can be safer, happier and healthier um, is to have the sort of education about relationships and as they grow older also about uh, sex um, that has been introduced in Birmingham and elsewhere, then that I think is in line with the rights of the child. And balancing the rights of the parent and the child, I think the right place to come down is to say the parent has all this you know, um, privilege of control over their children's lives and what they learn. The state has a responsibility to guarantee, um, together with that, the rights of the child. And so that curriculum is perfectly justified. Yeah, and I'll come, I'll come to you um, on this, Yehudis, but I just want to introduce another right, which is in, in the mix, which is Protocol 1, Article 2, the right to education, which says no, no person should be denied a right to education. Um, in the exercise of any functions which it assumes in relation to education and teaching, the state shall respect the rights of parents to ensure such education and teaching is in conformity with their own religious and philosophical convictions. Which is sounds pretty um, pretty strict, but actually in its application, it's not. It's 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 it comes in the balance, um, and actually, it's not, from my experience, a very powerful right. Although it's it sounds, yeah, it sounds powerful, doesn't it? And I mean, in you know, you can imagine the world in which the the European Convention is adopted is clearly a world that does not want to see a return to state indoctrination of children in schools against their parents' wishes, right? Which it had, which we had seen in Europe of different types um, in the years prior to the, the convention, whether it was fascist indoctrination or, you know, communist indoctrination or whatever. Um, and 
and clearly, you know, this guarantee is, in a sense, focused on on, on avoiding that. Um, but in its application, you're right; it's not. It's a best a double edged sword anyway, because um, you know the the first part of. Um, of, of, of what you read out obviously says no one should be denied the right to education and you can argue that for the children in, in, in this debate as much as for the parents and in any case it's difficult to argue that by giving children another perspective an additional perspective um, in school you're violating the parents right to transmit their perspective um, in conformity with their views um, and I think that's been the way things have gone and in addition additionally though I mean I have to say some humanist parents have used that success that uh, article 2 protocol to um, argue successfully in court that RE syllabuses that don't include non-religious worldviews are not respecting their um, uh, right to have their children educated at least with some access to the philosophical convictions that their parents follow because being not religious is is as a belief and atheism is a belief absolutely which is yeah humanism is a is a is a, is a worldview in in the meaning of religion or belief it's a belief um, atheist atheist approaches to the question of God are beliefs that are protected all those things are protected it is the hot issue I mean it's it's it, just from the Jewish communal perspective, and that's where I come from. It seems to be an issue which is just constantly on the on the agenda. Yeah, and, and maybe I'm in a minority here, but I think the LGBT question is a red herring. Um, it's a tiny, tiny part of much larger curriculum changes. Um, it's brought in as part of British values, and then it, it comes in again with the introduction of mandatory sex and relationship education. Um, there's so much reform that's needed. Um, so many children in my community are being denied a basic education. We had an offset report that came out a few days ago that said children didn't even know what language they were speaking. They couldn't identify if certain words they were speaking was Yiddish or English. Um, a, a second offset inspection um, in Golders Green that said um, books were found in the library that denigrated the role of women in society. Um, and there's an enormous amount of reform. And I think LGBT sort of campaigning on, well, we can't be forced to tell our children that gay people exist is just an easy hook to hang your coat on. Um, and it's something that they have realized the Christian and Muslim communities will ally with them on. But really and truly, that's not what they're protesting. That's really it. And, and, what, and what do you think they are protesting? What's, what's, the, what's the real, what would they want if they got a kind of what's their realistic um it's not take realistic. Home from this? <laughs> i mean what, what would you know in 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 that world what do they want to achieve and what they what do, what do they think they can achieve politically what's wanted and this was um there was a, a conference just last week um and there was a big sign behind the speakers about the rights to educate their children what's called Baderch Israel Saba which means in the way that our fathers educated us so they just don't want change. They want to be able to do things the same way they feel it's been done for the past thousands of years. I mean, I think that Yehudis is right actually that there's um, that the LGBT question is is a a useful wedge really for people who oppose any relationship or sex education in schools or any sort of personal social health education in schools mandated by the state um, to try and you know use to to for leverage. And I, it's not. It's no coincidence, for example, that whenever I've done any media work around those protests, the person who's been there against me 
saying we don't want this LGBT thing is the same person who 20 years ago um, would be campaigning against any relationships education in schools whatsoever. So I think that it's right that the LGBT thing is just the latest manifestation of, of this. Of yeah, this and, and for me, sex and relationship education in schools is primarily a safeguarding issue. Um, these are children who are brought up, I mean, representatives of, of the schools will, will go on national media and say no our children know nothing about sex and and how that manifests in reality is it makes children vulnerable to abuse it makes the community a really cushy and easy place for abusers to strike and also a majority of these children will have um, arranged marriages and we can we can um, dodge around the term forced marriage, but they're certainly coerced into a situation where marrying someone that they don't know, um, they are forced to consummate that marriage or, or they are coerced into consummating that marriage that very night. Um, and that's a dangerous situation that almost all those teenagers are going to face. So the only uh, window that the state has to intervene there um, is is education. So if the state can say to, to I'm not saying, um, at specifically what stage but if at some point the state can say all of these children need to understand consent and we're here to 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 explain it to you i think that's an opportunity that can't be missed that discussion is a really important one um, and i don't want to cut it short but i also do want to have time to discuss the services and employment cases which are you know they're they're really um common actually now you know you get what probably a, a new high profile one each year at least where a religious believer is goes to court i mean quite often backed by by an organization to be to be fair and that's why a lot of the cases come to come to court i think the christian Le- legal center is that yeah the christian called? institute the the christian legal center the christian concern for our nation it's there's a lot of politics in these cases yeah um but they are important cases and actually i, I have a slight um, affection for the Christian Legal Centre. I mean, they, they almost <laughs> always lose, but they bring these important issues to, to court and they get they give the courts the opportunity to to expound on on, on these important issues and usually um, in ways which Christian Legal Centre doesn't like. Um, but maybe <laughs> um, that's my personal bias. Um, but let's talk about the gay cake case, um, ah. which was the most recent and important case and actually was probably bucked the trend because in the end the the religious believers won, which is quite unusual in these cases. Yeah. Um, and, and this was a case, just to summarise it, Ashes Bakery is a, a big a multi-branch bakery in Northern Ireland. Two people came to the bakery. What They wanted a cake baking with a picture of Burton Ernie on it um, because they are famously Sesame Street characters who are in the closet. Um, and it was celebrating gay marriage was the message. And the Christian bakers didn't want to do that because they said it went against their Christian belief. Um, and this and the bakers lost in the Northern Irish High Court and in the Northern Ireland Court of Appeal. And then they won in the Supreme Court and they won on the basis of something called compelled speech, which is a American import, something which we've not seen here before, where the Supreme Court said, well, this is effectively being forced to speak something which is um, against your fundamental beliefs. Bake, baking is speech. Um, and it's a really difficult right. judgment. Um, and, and I think that, 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 that did Humanist UK get involved in the case? Well, um, we, we 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 only got involved in the case rhetorically. Actually, we, we, we're considering intervening at the uh, when it goes to Strasbourg. But we were in very active communication with the lawyers who were working on the case. Um, 
And it was controversial, even as it were, amongst humanists. And the reason it was controversial was because actually of this imported idea of compelled speech, which raises questions of freedom of speech, um, which even some, uh, you know, non-religious opponents of homophobia consider to be risky territory if you start to compel speech. Now, Humanist UK's position, having considered all the facts and the implications, was that the Supreme Court had got it wrong, was that the right arrangement and right balancing of rights would have been for the bakery, which, as you say, is a large multi-branch bakery with many staff. Um, The right outcome would have been for the bakery to have said, um, you know, who wants to, is anyone willing to ice this cake? Um, And if there were staff that were willing to do it, they could have done it. Um, The customer could have um, had their free speech um, allowed by being given access uh, to this uh, commercial service of having it printed on the cake in the free market um, in which this corporation, this baker corporation has decided to operate and no one's beliefs would have been harmed, right? And, and that's and, what that's what happens with pharmacists, isn't it? Exactly. The, the, the pharmacist guidance on selling the, the, the morning after pill right. is that if you have a religious objection to selling it, you have to find you have to find someone else to sell it to them, even if it means them going down the street to a different pharmacy. And I think that's the right solution because it accommodates the individual's conscience and the protection of their um, conscience, um, whilst at the same time um, making sure guaranteeing the dignity of the person seeking the service. Right. So the well, I mean, I, I think that's arguable actually whether it guarantees the dignity because. I th- that there's a, there is an argument that if you walk into oh I see you know a, a pharmacist uh, looking for a morning after pill and it's quite a sort of difficult and situation they say, actually go next door and they say actually I don't, yeah. I, don't I don't believe in I don't yeah, believe yeah. you should be able to and I, I mean that that, yeah. that that's a slightly separate argument but there is I mean I actually agree with you I think that in those specific circumstances um, of the pharmacy I think that there is a strong case for saying that pharmacists shouldn't be able to have that um, uh, that conscientious exemption. However, um, in general, if conscientious exemptions are possible whilst protecting the dignity of the of the service user, I think it is right. And I think that that could have been done in the in this case, right? If there was a baker in this large firm of bakers who'd have been willing to do it, and I'm sure there would have been, um, because most people in Northern Ireland support same-sex marriage, as opinion polls show, um, then I think it could have been done. And what, for me, was a, um, a very worrying outcome of the case, and it is something that's happening on the other side of the Atlantic and that we're being influenced by, was this idea that a corporation, you know, a business, could be held to have a sort of religious character or a conscience um, in the following of which it could deny people services. You heard us just thinking about that idea of services, and there have been lots of instances of religious believers refusing to provide services, whether um, Mrs. Liddell, who was the marriage registrar, said, I, my Christian belief means I can't um, I can't register civil partnerships when they were the only way that same-sex people could um, d- could have a legal union. Or there was Gary McFarlane, who was the relate counsellor, who said his Christian belief said he couldn't counsel gay couples. And do you think that, that when, the, when people are providing services in secular society in, to everybody, what, what's the right you know, balance there? So I think it's really important to protect individual sort of the individual's right to believe what they believe and also think about how effective, like in practical terms, how effective is a relate counsellor going to be with a couple if if they if they just can't get past it? There's many, many times where a counsellor will say, 
no, do you know what? I just can't work with this client for a personality clash and it's okay to move on. So I think it's um, it would be nice if we could distill it into this is, you know, this is right and this is wrong. But I think that there needs to be more nuance. I also question if we go back to the gay cake, um, what if neo-Nazis has gone into a bakery and said, we want you to print a swastika um, on a cake for us? Well, their beliefs aren't protected. Yeah, I, I think I think the legal answer is the one that is the one that Andrew gave, which is that they that they don't have protected beliefs because, um, and this the, the 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 most recent example of this is the Maya Forstater case, where and and this is going to appeal, I'm, I'm guessing, but the where a where her beliefs, which are that um, sex is biological sex is immutable, um, were not compatible with the. Um, with the dignity of others and therefore were not protected beliefs um, and that's a whole big question about about people what people believe about trans rights we won't get into that now because it's a bit it's for another day but nazism is clearly over the line yeah and i use nazism is clearly over the line but i think we one example in the jewish community which was being given is well what if somebody walked into a jewish baker bakery and asked for an anti-circumcision cake so said I I am I I want a cake saying circumcision is evil and um, with an appropriate image on it. You know what is the what's the right Do you mean a there? bakery staffed entirely by Jews? Yeah, I mean because a Jewish bakery Jews. is, so is you, a you're phrase that's uh, right. Yeah. I I I slipped there. You know a Jewish a, a bakery which is a kosher bakery which is I mean kosher bakeries aren't staffed entirely by Jews in my experience. So so even there is a is a nuance. And oh, yeah, I mean, it would have to be very specifically, wouldn't it? Um, Jews who believed that um, you know circumcision was always right, and also Jews that believed that other people shouldn't criticise uh, circumcision. Because after all, what the Ashes Bakery was saying wasn't just that um, they didn't support gay marriage, but that they were saying that they didn't think that this should appear on a cake, which is another extra belief. Not just you know, I, I you know, we all have to do things sometimes in the course of our work, which is another thing which might not accord completely with our own personal consciences. I, we can, have, I can speak to that. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, lawyers are the classic example. You're yeah. always saying and things we have you don't ca- believe. We have a cab rank rule, um, which means that we have to. Uh, for any club, we, we are n- expressly not allowed to f- um, let our personal beliefs stop us acting for a client. That's what the cab rank rule is exactly. all about. And if you're not willing to do that, you can't be a lawyer. So there is a cost to conscience as well, which I think we can't, although we, you know, say everyone must have their conscientious rights as far as is possible, the as far as is possible is a good rule. I would quite like to have been a vicar. You know, um, I think it would have suited me really well. I like sort of looking after people and being part of a community and so on. But, you know, I wasn't willing to pretend that I believed in God and was a Christian in order to achieve my desired profession. You know, we all have costs to our um, associated with living out our our lives conscientiously. And maybe it's the case that if you if you feel that strongly about the morning after pill, you can't be a pharmacist. Um, Or if you if you feel that strongly about what people should and shouldn't be allowed to say about gay marriage, you can't set up a commercial bakery um, operating for, for, you know, for all customers. There might just be uh, a cost to some things, which is the other side. You know, there's to say there's a balance is is important in this discussion about um, freedom of religion, freedom of expression. But there's also a line which you can't cross and you know we, we should explore those lines maybe a bit more as well and be a bit yeah, more robust I think if we can I, I know you say that there's a cost but then I go back to Adam's proportionality um, and if we say well you can't do this and you can't do that and you can't do the other because all of these different professions interfere with your religious beliefs actually Andrew that's really similar to the way I was brought up I was told I can't do much 
because my religious belief is is um, not compatible with outside society and that's why I need to segregate myself and that's why and, and I think we need to be really careful of both sides of that argument. I, do, I mean, I, I'm thinking out loud to some extent, and I'm sure you're right. Um, but and it, it just occurred to me that we'd spend a lot of discussion talking about catering for people and carving out exemptions, whilst you know it might equally want to talk about some things that we do just need to insist upon in society. Um, and I think, I mean, what your own personal story illustrates as well is the, the the how reliant we are as a society on individuals taking a stand to actually correct some of these historic harms and and and. Um, uh, discrimination. And I think that's actually a really serious question for human rights law in this country as well. I remember when the Human Rights Act came into force and the government at the time spoke very loftily of, you know, issuing guidance for all public authorities because all public authorities would now on have to apply the Human Rights Act, you know. Um, and we seem to have shifted a long way from that and come now to um, almost the only way to enforce the Human Rights Act is to go to court. You know, and it shouldn't really be like that. We should be trying to build a culture of human rights. Um, so the school... You know, that schools should know that it is out of the question that they could ask women to cover um, their arms with a shawl because they should know what the protected rights of all of their parents and children are because government should have, you know, promulgated um, this law rather than leaving it up to, um, you know, eccentric or brave or determined um, individuals. Did to, you just call me eccentric, Andrew? <laughs> I, or, or I said, he, or, he, he was being very general. He was—he he did, did an arm gesture. He did an arm gesture. Was, it like, like, oh, but also, yeah. by the way, I think eccentricity is much to be praised. <laughs> yeah, Bertrand Russell um, said, "Don't yeah, be afraid I, to be eccentric." I think eccentric. that's a problem um, that's uh, much wider than than you've described just now. If we look in general at uh, convictions for rape or any kind of sexual violence, they are appallingly low, and that's because we put the um, the onus on the victim to come. On yeah. and prove what, what's happened I to them to be able completely. to give good, yeah. so give good evidence. Um, so in general, victims of crime, particularly personal and intimate crimes, um, we, we do put the onus on them and I don't think that's right. Yeah, yeah. that's a challenge for all law. I mean, I, I, I think that the, I mean, this is something I've been going on about for, for a long time about that idea about human rights culture. And when the Human Rights Act came into force, my, the story I've heard, which I think is correct, is that there was an intention. So there, there was a big campaign to tell public authorities about their new duty under Section 6 to comply with yes. human rights principles and human rights law. But there wasn't a public education campaign. That's right. And, and I think that the, the reason there wasn't is because they just didn't have the money. They were going to do it and then they decided they, they didn't do it and they gave it to the um, uh, the... Equality and Human Rights Commission as a duty, but who, who haven't, you know, who have also had their budget cut by, I think, 75% over the years. So so the big shame is that it's left to, I, 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 I agree with you about the characterization of the kind of person that takes on a public authority or an institution. I think you have to be a special kind of person. And I mean that as a compliment, That you, but you have to be, there are only a limited number of people who are that kind of person who will put their neck you know, on the line. And it's always, it's almost always going against your own workplace, your own culture, your own community. And it hurts, you know, and, and I'm, I'm guessing you hear this, I think I'll give you the last word, because I'd, I think we, we need to round up as interesting as this, this such an interesting discussion. But I'll give you the last word on, on, on how that feels. Um, because it, from my experience, it doesn't, it's, it's, it's not that easy. Yeah, I think um, I've been, it wasn't an active choice. I didn't, um, 
I didn't dream of of being a leader or somebody who who brings about social change. Um, I was kind of put into this position by default when I spoke up um, and gave evidence in court, and then people started just coming to me and telling me their own stories. And I think the main thing that happened for them in that moment was they didn't realize that I was going to be believed. Now, when I say be believed, I don't mean be believed by a jury and um, succeed in a conviction. I mean, be believed enough by the court system that this issue would be heard in court. So the conviction, um, when I gave evidence, was a bonus. Just getting through the door and people being willing to listen um, was new for me. And, and I think that was new for a lot of the people in my community who've come to to support me. And, and, and would you just say very briefly what that conviction was? That was a conviction for sex offences against me when I was a child. And uh, we got a conviction 13 years, eight months with five years extended licence. And, and, and now you've, I mean, you know, that, that is an extraordinary thing to have done. But now you're putting that into um, Nahamu. Um, which I'm, I'm going to finish finish by saying again that that is an organisation which it, what's the website? The website is www.nahamu, which is n a h a m u dot org. Great. Well, thanks so much, Yehudis, um, and thank you, Andrew, and thank you, Juno, who has not been who's not <laughs> spoken during the podcast, but she is um, Andrew's beautiful cavapoo. She's been very well um, behaved. Who's been very well been behaved? She's the whole time. sleeping next to him with with a little glass of water, um, which, she's, <laughs> which she's not really touched. Um, okay. but she's been she's been very good. The first dog on on the podcast. So thank oh, you first dog, really. to you both. Thank you for having much. me. Thank you. Thank you so much to Andrew and Yehudis. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law in their pioneering new LLB Law undergraduate course taught in London. For 2020, they're launching a criminal justice and human rights pathway. Thank you so much to Samantha Bruff, the podcast editor, and Natasha Holcroft-Eames, who is the podcast research producer. If you want to support the podcast and want it to continue, please consider giving a couple of pounds a month to our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash better human. If you want to contact me, I'm Adam at betterhumanpodcast.com. We are at behumanpodcast on Twitter. Thanks very much for listening. This has been the Better Human Podcast. My name is Adam Wagner. See you next time. This episode is sponsored by the Human Rights Team at Lee Day.